is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by one of the best writers out there, Gerald Posner. Gerald has run everywhere, LA Times, York Times, Forbes, a multiple times best-selling author, written several books including New York Times bestsellers like Case Closed about the assassination of President Kennedy, God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican, and his latest work entitled Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America, which we're going to get into today. Although, now that I have Gerald here, I'm going to have to ask him a question about the uh, Kennedy assassination at the end. So, uh, Gerald, thanks so much for being with me. I really appreciate it. It's, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, no, Ashton, it's uh, great to be with you. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, not only uh, do I know we have things in common in terms of an interest in history and current events and politics and everything else, but we also happen to be uh, non-practicing attorneys uh, mm -hmm. who have found uh, new ways to uh, to spend our time and, and pay the bills. And so I'm glad to join you. Absolutely. So let me ask you about that first. You, you were a practicing attorney like me for several years uh, before venturing off into doing investigative journalism. How did you make that transition and do you feel that with the rise of you know the TikTok Adderall generation which which I'm, I'm part of uh we're losing people with those investigative journalism skills people who are gonna get in there real deep for several years on these complex topics and come out with a you know in-depth research assignment well-researched project do you think we're losing some of that yeah, we may be losing the attention span to do it. So that, that's a different thing. I mean, if you say to somebody, um, as a matter of fact, okay, uh, you're 20 years old and you've got fantastic research skills and you're really inquisitive and I'm going to give you a project and come back to me in two years with everything you found about it. They would look at you as though you were insane. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the, but, but I never actually started a project, a book project that I thought would last longer than a year. And then, you know, in, in the case of the Vatican, it was on and off for nine years. So it wow. goes to show you that I underestimate things all the time. If I actually knew how long they would last, maybe I would be dissuaded sometimes too. Uh, the, the move from uh, law to, to, uh, to writing and investigative journalism wasn't planned as the best things in life often aren't planned. Uh, I was actually, uh, you know, had gone from a large law firm, Crevasse, Swain & Moore, to a two-person law firm. And I certainly had time on my hands because we didn't have a line of clients out the door. And I got a call from a friend in the Justice Department who said they'd been approached by two twins, a brother and sister, who had been experimented on at Auschwitz by Dr. Joseph Mengele, and they wanted wow. to sue the Mengele family and the German government. The Justice Department wasn't going to do it, but did I want to spend some time on a pro bono lawsuit for them? And I said, sure. And little did I know that that was the start of like a five-year effort. And we got thrown out of federal court because of sovereign immunity. We couldn't sue Germany. And we didn't have the evidence then that the Mengele family was supporting the Nazi fugitive in South America. But in the end, I said, I've got all this material, 25,000 pages of documents. I've traveled to Argentina and Paraguay and everywhere else. I had the blinders on for research, so I knew what I had to get. So why don't I turn it into a biography? greatly underestimating how difficult that was. Mm. And that became the first book with the co-author, gave some of the proceeds back to the twins and uh, liked it so much that I kept doing it. So it sort of segued into from law to, to writing and investigative work, but in a very unplanned way. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, Mengele, I didn't know you, the first, I knew you did something on Mengele. I didn't know that was your first one. That's a, uh, that is one interesting figure in history. I mean, just... So, someone that's often not even discussed very often. A lot of people forgot about it. That's right. And, and, and Ashton, one of the things I learned, and you'll understand this completely, as a lawyer, I think there are certain things as lawyers that we learn in terms, and I was on litigation, so the firm I was with, Cravath, was defending IBM at the time, you know, being sued by the Justice Department for being a monopolist in the computer business. It shows you how much the computer business has changed over time. No one could think of IBM as monopolizing the computer business. Right. And yeah. in, in the defense of that, 
company, there were tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages of documents, an mm -hmm. enormous court record and everything else. And I have a sticky memory. So you made yourself useful by learning and understanding that court record as, as well as possible. And I think that's come to be a great help in these massive sort mm -hmm. of projects like going in and looking at the Vatican finances or whatever else. And I learned early on in the Mengele work that you could be dedicated and 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 pursuing a certain line, but there was a bit of luck involved in terms of timing about which sometimes you had no control. And so, for instance, I arrived in Argentina for the first time to do work on Mengele in November of 1984. It just happened to be that's the time I was going down there. There had been stories over the years that Mengele had been in Argentina for up to a decade after the war, but nobody was able to prove it. They'd never seen the Argentine files on him. They had, Simon Wiesenthal, the Nazi had asked for them, Israel, the United States, Germany had all asked, and the Argentinian juntas had always said no. So the military junta that ran the country had fallen because the Argentines had, Argentines had fought a war with Britain over the Falkland Islands. When they lost that, everybody was furious that the military threw them out, and the country was going through a spasm of democracy. Raul Alfonsin was the first elected head of state. I applied at Casa Rosada, which is their White House, uh, right in the center of Buenos Aires, to see the Mengele files. Now, they would have laughed me out the door normally, but I happened to catch them in this spasm of democracy. And after a couple of weeks of waiting there, they sent at 11 o'clock at night a very disgruntled sort of police escort to take me down to the national police headquarters where a para where a Argentine colonel then let me in to see the Mengele file. And it was 10 years of Mengele's life. So it was a treasure trove of documents. And I saw at that time a file on a, on a, on a wooden uh, table a couple of feet away that said Borman, Martin, wrapped up. And I asked if I could see it. Today I wouldn't ask if I could see it. I would just try to get it. And they said no. And that started a multi-year process in which I kept trying to get the Martin Borman file. He was Hitler's deputy and people thought he died in Berlin after the war. When Bush, the first Bush was president, and the next Argentine president, Menem, came to Washington to visit him. The New York Times let me run an op-ed on the day he arrived saying, free the Borman files. And over a period of time, they first denied they existed, then they denied I was there. Finally, they admitted it. And over a period of years, they released all their Nazi files. So my point is that you have an effect on history and you get things for your own projects, sometimes not by being the best or smartest, but by the luck of being at the right place at the right time. And you have no control over that. Right, right. You have to put yourself in those positions as well. Yeah, absolutely right. If you aren't in that position, you aren't. You don't have the chutzpah to ask. You're not going to get it. Mm -hmm. Now, talking about your your book with the focusing on the pharmaceutical industry, specifically the American pharmaceutical industry. I like how you you gave such a interesting substantive history of of how that developed. So, to analogize the financial world, something you're a bit familiar with, something I'm a bit familiar with. The you know being a banker wasn't really a big deal up until like the eighties and then became you know the financialization of everything and being in finance was like the thing to be it became the biggest behemoth in society up until really big tech sort of overtook it and uh, obviously still a huge player as is pharmaceutical industry big pharma as they say which you know may be more powerful today than it's ever been especially coming off of COVID uh, they're they're were in positions of actually setting government policy this time around. But that wasn't always the case, right? So how the pharmaceutical industry becomes such a dominant force, if you could sort of like briefly trace that out for us. It went from nothing to being this huge player in our economy, in our society. And who are the players responsible for that? You know, it's so interesting because you hit the key. It went from nothing to being big players. And today, you know, we grow up and live in a society in which we look at the pharmaceutical industry and we think that they've always been big players mm -hmm. and what we don't realize is that a hundred years ago and even a little bit before that I mean, the whole industry started only to form after the american civil war when there's a tremendous demand for morphine because of battlefield injuries and companies like the pfizer uh you know cousins two german cousins in new york who opened up charles pfizer around that time uh you know a, a colonel in the uh, the army eli Lilly, uh all these groups that really started the names that we end up knowing um merck and others form around the time of the Civil War, a little bit after. They're making a lot of money from morphine. And this is a time in which we know very little about curing illness, but the drugs that are selling are so-called miracle drugs. They're supposed to be in everything is legal in the United States, cocaine, cannabis. 
Bayer, well, which we all know is Bayer aspirin, not only invented aspirin and acetaminophen, Tylenol, they invented an entire class of barbiturates. Theirs was phenobarbital, but they also invented a replacement for morphine that they trademarked as heroin. They said it'll get you off your morphine addiction. Well, it will. They create a new addiction a little bit stronger. So heroin was legal. It was being marketed. All of that stopped cold turkey in 1914 when the U.S. Passes the Harrison Act and narcotics are suddenly illegal. Then we go into that strange sort of uh, experiment with banning alcohol through prohibition. So the drug company has nothing. And Moody's, which ranks, as you know, uh, the size of different sectors of the economy, right. when they do right. their first corporate roundup in 1909, they don't even list the pharmaceutical industry. It's so tiny, it's not even there. It's not until 1929 that it's even a separate standalone entity. And it's World War II that turns the industry around when the government suddenly decides it's going to make penicillin, this experimental drug that's going to save lives again on the battlefield. And it's a miracle drug. We commit the U.S. government full power behind it. And what emerges after World War II is the industry we start to see today. And, and that's really it. It's the last 70 years is the growth of what we call, you know, big pharma, for lack of a better word. Now, things like uh, heroin and so heroin's created by Bayer. Cocaine, was that also from one of these uh, big pharma labs? They all had their own brands. Nobody had a trademark on cocaine, which is interesting. So one of the things you were able to do at the time, and they, and they did compete with each other in terms of the purity of their cocaine, for $1.50 from uh, what was the, I suppose, the Amazon of its day, and that was the Sears and Roebuck catalog, this big 800-page catalog, for $1.50, you could order a small little leather-bound kit that had a, a syringe and a small amount of cocaine, enough to inject three to four times. Now, that's pretty hard to imagine that that was the case, but it was available in Sears and Roebuck. So cocaine was widely distributed. Yeah, the precursor to Silk Roads, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. There you go. The, the early days. I, I had um, – last week I had uh, Dr. Carl Hart on my podcast. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's – He's, you know, he advocates for drug legalization, and he's open heroin user, uh, Columbia professor. He says that the reason why things like heroin and cocaine uh, and amphetamines were were made illegal is because they played on the racist tropes. But what's your what's your analysis of that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So the, the, when the law was passed first against opium in the United States, like in 1910, 1911. There's no question it was directed toward the opium dens in the Chinatowns like San Francisco and that. Mm -hmm. People were saying, oh, we think that's just terrible. We don't like those opium dens there. And so they cracked down on that. But eventually they ended up banning all of it. So there's no doubt about that. What the, uh, there's little question in my mind that the, the heavy use of um, all forms of cocaine, heroin, uh, legalized uh, opium, morphine, and everything else, the turn of the century, you could track the same way that you could track the price, let's say, of um, Facebook until it started to go through its recent downturn, that upward chart, you could also track not only the increasing sales of the legalized drugs, but also the increasing number of addictions, admissions to hospital for uh, alcohol or drug-induced psychoses or nervosis, so all types of admissions. Now, after prohibition goes into place and alcohol is banned, it's very interesting if you follow the number of alcohol admissions for uh, uh, hospital admissions, let's say for alcohol-induced psychosis, it drops to near zero by the end of prohibition. That's not a good reason to ban alcohol. I'm not mm -hmm. saying ban alcohol, but there's a trade-off on all of this. Right. So if you want to advocate for, for drug legalization, uh, you don't have to say it was originally banned for the wrong reasons because it was done uh, based on racial stereotypes. You have to argue for today. What's the argument today? For legalizing or not legalizing and if you do legalize there's a trade-off that you get in terms of society you're going to pay a higher cost maybe for some work on hospital work and other drugs you're going to pay a, a cost in terms of an addiction rate whether it's even a, a physiological addiction society has to make that calculation as to whether it wants to do it or not but that's a separate question the now you, you speak quite a bit about the sackler family in your book uh very interesting tidbits I never even heard before. So about them originally being these like communist sympathizers and then transitioning into th these sort of marketing geniuses that revolutionize the way drugs play a role in American society and how they're brought forth to common everyday Americans. And this is long before, you know, the, the whole Oxycontin saga and all the, all the death and destruction that amounts from that. Can you sort of describe like the role the Sackler family played in 
American society in terms of marketing drugs and making them more prevalent? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's fascinating with the saccharides because they they are the you know the the, the first generation of three brothers uh, born in the United States to immigrant parents who are, you know Eastern European Jewish parents who moved to the states sort of are hardworking and and they all become the three boys they're the first to go to college in the family as happened with a lot of immigrants they all become physicians psychiatrists um, the two younger brothers end up having to go to Scotland for their medical work because when they applied to go to NYU as had the older brother they were the, the Jewish quota at NYU was filled in those years people forget that there was not only a black quota but a Jewish quota couldn't get into the school and they come from you know the Jewish immigrant that moved into New York in the early part of the, in the 1800s, late 1800s and early 1900s were sort of solid, in many ways solidly socialist voting bloc. Uh, so when Eugene Debs ran as the only socialist candidate for president, 60 percent of his votes come from New York City. Uh, nearly 55, 60 percent of the, the Socialist Party registered in New York are are Jewish from and, and I think the Sacters came very much from that. They took it to another level because the brothers, two of them, end up becoming card-carrying members of the Communist Party in the middle of the Cold War, an astonishing time. And and Arthur, who's the oldest of the brothers, uses his advertising firm, which you mentioned before, sort of you know, medical advertising, which is unusual to say the least, as a safe haven for reporters and journalists who can write a little bit of ad copy who've lost their jobs at at the places like the New York Times and other places because they were kicked out once it was discovered that they wouldn't answer a question. They took the Fifth Amendment on whether they were members of the Communist Party through the Great Red Scare of the 1950s and Joe McCarthy. So the Sacklers survived all of that. I got the FBI files on them. The FBI ended up investigating them, even at one point for an espionage possible investigation. They thought that they were tied to two Americans who uh, had given information to the Soviets. That didn't go anywhere. Um, they were talking about using an informant inside of Arthur Sackler's company. And to show you how much I miss the politics on this, for me, I thought it was a big disclosure that the family that had become some of the most successful capitalists in the drug business had become billionaires and landed on the Forbes wealthiest family list in 2015 worth, you know, $15 billion and had their names on Harvard and, you know, and, and across the, uh, you know, the, uh, the museums and the best places, the Metropolitan and the Smithsonian. The fact that they were card-carrying members of the Communist Party and then obviously gave that up as they became very successful capitalists would be somewhat newsworthy, but nobody seemed to care. It was as though, oh, okay, so they were communists, big deal. But I think people underestimate the degree to which that was a real danger back at the time of the, the Cold War in the 1950s. It could have blackballed them. And as a matter of fact, two of the brothers, the younger brothers who were working at the largest state mental hospital in New York ended up refusing to sign a loyalty oath that they had to for the army because some military work was done there. And so they were kicked out. They, um, and uh, not only did they survive, but they prospered. And uh, you're exactly right. They, had, they were very clever guys. And the eldest brother thought, I can sell medicine. And as you know, Ashton, you think to yourself, sell medicine, what does that mean? Because the pharmaceutical industry is like no other. You, you don't have manufacturers sell directly to us, the consumers, the, we're the patients. You have to go through this middle person, the doctor. So the doctor has to write the prescription. So normally, pharma companies in the 50s after World War II were only interested in selling their antibiotics, that's most of what they were making, to doctors and encouraging them to write the prescriptions. Sackler said, the oldest one, Arthur, he went to a, a company, Pfizer, and said, you know what? I can take your mediocre antibiotic. It's almost the same as a competitor. It's only one atom of difference. I can make it the best-selling antibiotic in the country if you give me $10 million for an ad campaign. And they thought he was crazy, but they gambled with him. That's an enormous amount of money. And he's the guy, Sackler, who invented what we call detail teams, the, the drug reps that go out and try to persuade doctors to write prescriptions. He was the one who came up with the ideas of let's have a speaker's bureau at this pharmaceutical company so you can pay a doctor $5,000 to give a speech. If they're in New York, they can go down to the Bahamas in the middle of February and talk to a group of Bahamian doctors and have a nice vacation as well. Um, he ran full color ads in the Journal of the American Medical Association. He splurged on flyers and giveaway toys and everything else. And, and it worked. He <laughs> made that the number one drug in America and went on to have success with Valium, the big hit from Altman Roche, and a whole series of others. These guys were like the uh, Bezos of uh, of the pharmaceutical industry. Huh? It's unbelievable how much of a role they played in so many different areas in history. 
from the 50s, the 60s, and then Oxycontin. Right. And way before Oxycontin was on anybody's radar, before it ever existed. So we're talking decades beforehand. And the interesting thing about the Sacros is that you're right. They, they are sort of the basis of their era, but they have something going for them that was really critical. And that was because they were doctors and they were they had a certain gravitas when they went to these companies and tried to sell them. If you went, Ashton, if I went and we said, hey, we've got a great idea. Let's run these four color ads. Let's send these doctors down to Bahamas. Let's go ahead and tell these doctors we want the highest prescribing ones. and We're just going to do this. They might have listened to us. But but Sackler was able to combine his sales acumen, which he had. He was a natural promoter together with enough medical basis to make it sound as though it was unique. And so. When he was taken on by Hoffman LaRoche, the Swiss pharmaceutical company, to represent them for first Librium, the first benzodiazepine, and then the subsequent drug Valium, he made Valium the best-selling drug in the world for 15 years. as an unparalleled record. It was an unbelievable money maker for Hoffman LaRoche. But he did more than just sell it. He was the one who came up with the idea that we could – he made a small book that Hoffman LaRoche put out on it. He came up with the idea as to why women needed it different than men. He sold doctors at a time when 95% of the physicians in America were men. He convinced the prescribing doctors that women needed something like Valium because it would make them less hysterical and uh, more willing to do housework and better with the children. Um, and that was the big problem. Today, it sounds so sexist, we can't believe anyone would listen to it, but it worked. Um, Two thirds of the prescriptions were written for women. And men, on the other hand, needed it because they were the breadwinners. They were under tremendous stress. They had to hide their emotions and how they felt. So therefore, they developed ulcers and we could give them volume to take some of the stress off so they could be just as hardworking at work, but not necessarily develop the ulcers. And doctors liked all that, wrapped in a little bit of more medical language that I'm giving you, and they, they followed it with the record numbers. The Sackler knew, by the way, that if you took a drug like Valium or Librium, which in the past had been used as sort of this psychiatric drug, you limit it to psychiatrists, you weren't going to make a lot of money because there are too few psychiatrists dealing with too few people. So Arthur Sackler's brilliant right. idea for Hoffman LaRoche was we've got to get general practitioners to write the prescription. And within a few years, within three to four years, 90% of the prescriptions being written for Valium are written by general practitioners, the primary care doctors as they are today. And that's the same way it's been ever since. So if you, you deal with antidepressants, if you talk about Prozac, uh, you talk about Xanax, the successors to Valium, it's general practitioners who are writing the prescriptions. No one's going, well, some people are going to psychiatrists, but psychiatrists are providing only a small number of the scripts. Right. That's true. I never thought about that. You're right. That's, uh, those medications are usually given by your GP. And so he was, he was instrumental. That's fascinating. Absolutely. And, and, and that really is the key. You know, and so there's so many different elements, as you know. It's not as though you put one light switch on and that changes the entire business. You have to look at it from so many different perspectives. And one of the great things was not only just selling it, but understanding that since the doctors were the sort of the, the narrowing of the spigot here, you had to go through them before you could really get the prescriptions in big numbers. You had to get to as many doctors as possible. And that meant you wanted to go to the general practitioners to say, you know what? This is going to make your life easier. This is a drug that's oh, see, Sackler's so his wonder drug. What was his, uh, you know, the golden drug for him, if he could develop one was the equivalent of a happy pill, a drug that you could prescribe when you weren't sick. You would take it every day and you'd feel better about life. And you know, that's almost what some, uh, what Valium became for a while before people realized, oh, it can be addictive and has side effects. That's what SSRIs, antidepressants were for a while before people realized, oh yeah, they have a whole list of side effects as well. There's no, there's no free lunch, but that was Sackler's idea. And that's essentially what he was convincing doctors to do. Prescribe Valium, uh, prescribe Librium, your patients will be happier, less stressed out, healthier in the long run, and you'll have an easier time as a doctor. Wow. Pioneering the uh, subscription model we see so much of today. It's, that's, that's really unbelievable. The, now, yeah, go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say, when you say the subscription model, everybody says, right, you can't sell a single product. You have to have a subscription model. I get it. I pay for Adobe now and Word on you know, my subscription. But he got, and the drug companies got something very interesting. In the, I mentioned to you before, in the 50s, the big drugs for them were antibiotics. All the American drug companies made antibiotics. And then, starting in the 60s and 70s, they started to say to each other, hey, you know what? Antibiotics, that's sort of not a great feel because somebody takes them only when they get sick. Mm -hmm. And then they take them for maybe a week, 
five days, if we've got a really good one, only three days. Why do we spend all this money and effort on that? The real subscription model in pharmaceuticals is to get somebody who has high cholesterol, diabetes, um, you're dealing with somebody uh, who has high blood pressure. Now you're going to develop a drug for them they have to take every day for the rest of their life. Right. That is the winning subscription model in terms of the drug company. Absolutely. Customer for life. With uh, Oxycontin, so that was – so that yeah, the original three brothers and then one of them had a kid. And it was Richard who, who pioneered Oxycontin. Is that right? Yeah, Richard, who is the the son of um, the the actual the the brother who ended up running um, Purdue Pharma, and you know what what's fascinating about the the Sacklers in this is the idea for OxyContin doesn't actually come from them originally. The idea for a long acting pain reliever comes from a British nurse turned practitioner. Uh, who is in Britain looking in the 1960s to create hospice. She's the one who sort of invents the idea of hospice. She says, you know, I'm working in these hospitals with people dying of end of life, terminal cancer, and they're dying in the hospital. We can't send them home to die with their families because the pain relievers we have are short acting. They're only good for four hours. We're giving it through IVs. Can't somebody invent a long acting uh, pain reliever? And a number of companies try to do it. And the one that comes up with it is a company called Nap in Britain that happens to be owned by the Sacklers. And so it's the Sacklers company in the UK that develops this long-acting and invisible polymer wrapper that's good for 12 hours that releases morphine slowly and allows hospice to be created. This is in the 1970s. Now, you don't get OxyContin until 1996 in the U.S., so when they decided to bring out a long-acting pain reliever in the U.S., they went through these meetings and they said, we can't put it out as morphine. Because morphine has a bad sort of impression with the public. People think of morphine as being something that's end of life. So they came up with oxycodone, which is the underlying ingredient. And they eventually do oxycontin. And when they do market it here, the difference between that drug and what they had before is in the way they market it, the FDA's approval, the way they try to make it as Arthur Sackler had. He's or, he dies in 1989, but the brothers pick up his marketing idea and say, we've got to reach as broad a market as possible. We don't just want pain doctors giving this out. We don't just want cancer doctors giving it out for terminal end of life uh, cancer treatment for the last four weeks. We want it given out for bad back pain. We want it given out, and, and they happen to get lucky in the beginning, and then they took advantage of it. There's a group of doctors who were up at Sloan Kettering, the Cancer Institute in New York, who were reevaluating opioids in the 80s. And they said, you know what? We think opioids have been tarred and feathered. They aren't as addictive or as dangerous as we thought in the possible. So they're starting to reevaluate it. They turned out to be wrong, but that reevaluation movement happens just before OxyContin comes out. In addition, there's a group of pain doctors who say pain is underdiagnosed. We think that when you go to a doctor and say, I have a pain in my shoulder, that the doctor tries to find the underlying cause. They shouldn't do that. They should treat it pain on its own with pain relievers. And that's where they come in with the idea of this 10-point scale. What's your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? They make mm -hmm, it one mm -hmm. of the five diagnostic uh, uh, symptoms. So when you go to see the doctor, they say, you know, what's your blood pressure? They take your heart rate and everything else. They say, what's your pain level today? This all comes in the late 80s, early 90s. So the Sacklers come out with OxyContin which is thought to be a less abusable form of a, of a pain, a narcotic painkiller because of the long-acting relief on the sort of the right at the right time because we're concentrating on pain. There are some doctors to say opioids are less addictive and boy, the sacrifice there to take advantage of it. Yeah. So I read that Oxycontin generated $24 billion of revenue in about 20 years, which is just unheard of. That's one drug, $24 billion in revenue. Did they know beforehand like what they had here? Did they think that this would be like the biggest drug? Was it the biggest drug in the world for, for time? must have been, right? At $24 billion over that course of time. Did they know? Twenty, you know, amazing. It wasn't, which tells you how good drugs are when you hit the right one. So what happens is $24 billion for 20 years, but then take that through. So 1996, if you end up running that through 2019, it actually grossed 35 billion, amazing amount, right? Of which the Sacklers get on the, the Forbes richest family list. They were wealthy beforehand, but not like this, as billionaires. So they are a one hit company, by the way, meaning that just like you have record labels or a recording act, you hear, oh, they're one hit, uh, you know, they had one hit, you never hear them again. The Sacklers tried to get a couple of other drugs out, they never had anything. So it was that one hit. Whereas if you took Johnson & Johnson or Teva or one of the other companies that are opioid painkillers, you take those painkillers away, they still have another entire line 
of drugs that they're putting out for a whole host of conditions, they will survive, but they lose that part. The saturates, you take out OxyContin and they're nothing. They also, they never thought it would be that big, but when it became that big, they were very good at pushing it forward. And you say, is it the biggest drug ever? No, the biggest drugs ever are are things like Umera, which is um, used uh, for rheumatoid arthritis, um, things like that. That's a, that in its first year was a $14 billion drug in a single year. It's taken in over $100 billion. Pfizer in 2021 set a new record for a single FDA-approved drug in its first year, which was the vaccine, which it took in $33 billion on. All right, but that's a different situation. You don't always get a pandemic to boost your sales numbers. So the sector number is impressive for $35 billion. One of the other things is, and, and you know this so well, all the other, look at the top 20 pharmaceutical companies. They're all public companies. So they have shareholders. People don't know necessarily who their CEOs are. They may, if they're into drugs or that. The Sacras stand out because they are family owned a private company and therefore they were making these enormous profits. And uh, I think they were quickly the poster children for the opioid uh, crisis and what went wrong and rightly so in many ways. Right. Now, yeah, it's unbelievable they were private. Yeah, because I, I started my career as an attorney doing securities class actions. And so a big part of it was these uh, drug companies lying about their data, and then you could just you know, you go into discovery, and a lot of you can find public statements they made, and then make a case out of that because they're public. They have a lot of reportings. So with a private company, yeah, it's, it's a different ballgame. There's a lot more you can conceal for a much longer period of time. That yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and that's and that turns out to be critical with Purdue because Purdue pleads guilty in 2007 to misbranding the drug, federal charges. And that's a big deal. They pay six hundred million plus over six hundred million dollar fine. Three top executives pay thirty million in fines, and they have to sign a compliance agreement going forward. So in two thousand seven, OxyContin has been on the market for eleven years. They marketed it too aggressively. It's clear they get brought down by the federal government. It looks like the end of them, but they don't follow that compliance agreement. They get even more aggressive, and because they're not public, they're able to hide it for a long time in a way a public company could never have done so. Right, right. That's a good point. How much, how much damage do you attribute to? So we're looking at talking about the opioid crisis. I think what are the what are the figures over the last twenty years that they quote? It's like something like a hundred thousand last year. Um, I, th I think it's close to it's over a million over the, this century, right? And uh, so some so their argument was at the time, and I've heard this argument parroted by other people. And I, actually, Carl Hart also made some argument. I, I, there's some validity to it, it seems, that, okay, well, you're counting these opioid deaths. You're saying this is an opioid crisis, but, you know, these people had like five other things in their system. They had amphetamines, they had alcohol, and really the combination of these things is what killed them and, and not necessarily the, the opioid. So what do, you make of, what do you make of that argument, how legitimate that? And then how what role would you attribute OxyContin to this opioid crisis? Like maybe in percentage terms or something, how, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, it's almost impossible to give it a percentage term. Somebody may, but they're just guessing. And the reason is exactly what you just said. You've got this overall figure of over a million, you have 100,000 last year. Some people are buying illegal off the street fentanyl and dying. Some people are getting fentanyl mixed in with other drugs. And you're absolutely right that one of the first things that happens, and I talk about this in the book, is that in 2001, 2002, the DEA is urging the FDA to crack down on OxyContin because they're picking up evidence of diversion on the street and what they think are overdoses. So they pulled together dozens of autopsies to be able to present to the FDA and to uh, executives from Purdue Pharma about these overdoses. And once they make the presentation, the Purdue people pretty much give the defense of what you just said a second ago is, hey, look at these autopsies. There's the Xanax in here. There's uh, there's weed. There we have barbiturates. It's everything else. It's a bit of the Elvis Presley. You know what killed them? You don't know. There's a cornucopia of drugs inside there, and so many of the drugs operate in the same way, which is opioids tend to slow down the respiratory system. That's what happens, and it slows it down enough, you end up dying. Well, so do barbiturates and other things. And uh, sometimes people like Jim Belushi, the actor from years ago, end up dying from a speedball, which is a combination then of heroin and cocaine. The heart can't take it. So there are all types of things that can kill you. There is no doubt that many people who were not avid drug users of any type developed addictions from using OxyContin, which was readily available, and then moved on in some cases to heroin, not because they wanted to, but because when 
it became cheaper than OxyContin. And um, in addition, when the, when the restrictions were put on, on OxyContin refills and it was harder to get, they had to look for alternative drugs. So street drugs started to compete with that. So what is the percentage uh, that you blame the opioid crisis on OxyContin? I don't know if you can give it a percentage, but I can say this. The Sacklers and OxyContin were there in the early days that this took off. They certainly helped to fuel it. And they aren't the only ones to blame because I also blame over-prescribing doctors. There were pill mills that were operating that were essentially just running as illegal drug dispensing units, but they happened to have a medical degree at the front, and some of them were eventually lost their license or put in jail. You had drug distributors, right. multi-billion dollar companies like McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Marisource Bergen that knew where every pill in the country was going. They knew when 5 million OxyContin would be sent to a little town in West Virginia mm -hmm. with a population of 1,200 people, and they didn't report it to the FDA or anyone else. There were pharmacies, like the big chain pharmacies of CVS, Walgreens, and Dwayne Reed. They were later fined hundreds of millions of dollars by the government for filling fraudulent prescriptions and not doing anything about it. So there's plenty of blame to go around here, but OxyContin sort of it, they, the kernel of that in the beginning. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Sacklers uh, don't deserve all the blame without any doubt, but they, uh, they certainly uh, deserve a good part for helping to kick it off. Right. And on top of their lies and deception, which we were later able to uncover, how did they hoodwink the FDA? So FDA gave them a special label on their product that I believe is unprecedented, right? They never gave it to anybody before and essentially said that this is not prone to abuse to the same extent that other opioids are, right? How did they hoodwink the FDA into giving them that incredible – it feels like an endorsement almost. Like how did they pull that off? Hey. It does. So it's, it's so fantastic because you would tend to think that that's almost impossible to do. How could they ever get that past the FDA? It would be the type of thing that if you were still practicing law and you were able to do what they did for your client, you'd be embarrassed to tell them how little you had to do to get it done. And what I mean by that is they sort of went to the FDA. If you look at these original meetings and the notes and everything else, and they said to the FDA, hey, look, we've got this invisible polymer coating over the pill that lasts up to 12 hours. And so therefore, it won't be subject to abuse because people who are abusing these drugs are using the ones that are good for four hours, biting into them and getting the entire dose of the drug at once. Uh, what we're doing is dispensing the opioid over this 12-hour period in a time-release formula, and therefore you won't get high from it. Since people won't get high from it, they won't be using this pill to abuse, and they won't be going ahead and diverting it to the black market. Now, in, in a sense that there's some logic to that, it, unless you point out the fact that people could still take it and bite into it or crush it and snort it, which, which addicts did do. But the FDA said that's reasonable. Even though there was no clinical study that showed that was true, they put that on the label and the Sacklers were brilliant. They gave that to their marketing teams. And when doctors who were sold the drug, who said, hey, this is a great new thing. You should really prescribe this more and more and more. Doctors said, we're not so sure. What about the addictive qualities? They'd say, hey, look at here. Look at the label. The FDA says less likely to be abused. Doctors were very impressed by that. And you know, want to know one of the reasons the public doesn't trust government for the most part. They don't trust the big pharma. Two years, two and a half years after giving that approval, the, the FDA official who oversaw all of that ends up going to work for Purdue Pharma, four times the salary he had for the FDA, Dr. Curtis Wright. Now, even if there was no quid pro quo or anything else, let's say it was all above board, that's how pharma works, that's how the SEC works, that's how people, you know, people who work in the Justice Department for any trust later go to work for a defense company and defend companies against it. We have this one-door policy, you work for the government, then you go to work for the, uh, the, the, one of the companies you were regulating for big money. But it doesn't look kosher. Mm -hmm. Nobody likes it, especially when you've given a drug maker like Purdue on OxyContin an unprecedented line on their label, and you later go to work for them. It just smells rotten. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really unbelievable, and it's the best free advertising you could ever ask for. It's like, yeah, look at the FDA. They, they say it's cool. It's uh, – yeah, I mean, it's, it's truly shocking. The other major gripe with Big Pharma, right, why, why, it, why it gets so much revulsion among so many people – is the price of prescription drugs, of the price of these pharmaceuticals, particularly in the United States, and how big of a difference that is relative to the European nations, for example, and the rest of the world. Can you speak about what America does differently, why our drugs are so much more expensive? And then also talk about this thing, this orphan drugs phenomenon. I'm not, I wasn't really familiar with that before I saw in your book. 
I wasn't familiar with it before I started to research the industry. I was shocked by it. But, uh, okay, so the, the easy, the short answer to why drugs are more expensive in the United States than anywhere, anywhere else in the world is because they can be. We allow drug companies to set their own price. We don't regulate it. We don't negotiate with them. We don't come in and we knock down the price. In every Western European country, in Asia and everywhere else, they have either medical panels, doctors, other drug companies appointed as part of a group. They have national health plans in which they negotiate with the companies and they bring the prices down. The biggest profits are made here in the U.S., so it's whatever the market will bear. And drug companies will say, we need it for research and development. We need these uh, uh, profits to be able to do that. Take the top 10 companies, the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, they spend more on average every year on share buybacks and promotion than they do on research and development. So they can cut back a little bit on the share buybacks and the and the promotion, they could do a little bit more R&D. People are surprised to even find out, when I talk to people who've lost a child to OxyContin, uh, I do a lot of work on the opioid crisis, they're surprised to learn that not only do they hate the drug, but they paid more for it in the United States than anywhere else in the world. They charge more for it here. Uh, when when uh, Regeneron came out with a, a therapeutic early on uh, for, you know, in COVID, they charged 33% uh, more in the U.S. than was charged in Europe or anywhere else. That happens all the time. Um, and although, and people say to me, who's to blame, Democrats or Republicans? And I say, what decade are you talking about? One decade, I might blame Republicans. Another decade, I might blame, uh, you know, Democrats. When COVID took place, the first bill that came in under Donald Trump was a, a bill for $6 billion, rushed through, getting it through. And then it went up to $11 billion. Three billion of that was for drug companies. Went through in like ten days. It's not. It was before uh, we di we did anything else. It was the first tranche of money. The Democrats controlled the House. Nancy Pelosi had the House. Trump had the White House. The Republicans, and so both parties had to agree to get that bill through. The first version of that bill said, by the way, on the three billion that goes to drug companies, not only do we have a tool to keep the price of the eventual vaccine reasonable, but in addition, nobody owns the intellectual property rights. They have to share it, just like they did with penicillin in World War II. So we're going to give them this money. You take federal money. You're going to share the research. By the time the bill came out 10 days later, those were stripped out of the bill. So Democrats and Republicans had to agree to it. Everybody's able to own then their own vaccine. They make a lot of money from it. And so my point is that in the U.S., it's whatever the market bears. And orphan drugs, by the way, is a bill passed in the early 1980s, a good intent with unintended consequences. The drug companies weren't paying attention to what I call these areas with small genetic diseases that have small populations, sometimes a few hundred people. They, they didn't pay attention to it because there wasn't enough of a market to be able to go ahead and, and treat the patients and make money. So the government said, okay, we'll help you out. We'll right. give you an extra lock on the exclusive selling time of seven years. We'll expedite the process before the FDA. You'll get tax credits. You'll have all types of benefits. We'll make it financially worthwhile for you to investigate these small areas. Drug companies started to do that, and then they realized, oh, wow, those are fantastic. We get them covered by Medicaid and Medicare, which they do. We can charge what the market will bear. So they become, if you the top 10 most expensive drugs in the world today, look at them, all are, all are today orphan drugs. 1.8 million a year, 1.2 million a year, 400,000 a year. It's, it, you I think it's hard to imagine, but insurance companies are paying the bills. Drug companies have even convinced European national health systems in some cases to pay enormous amounts, although less than the U.S., by convincing them that the amount paid for the drug will be less than what would happen if the if they had to pay for the lifetime of hospitalizations and other treatments for somebody who had this rare genetic illness like Huntington's disease. So it's become an area where the drug companies have learned how to game the system. Um, Botox, which many people may know is a drug used today for cosmetic purposes, has made billions of dollars for Allegrin. It's used to reduce the appearance of wrinkles. Um, that originally started as an orphan drug to reduce the uh, sort of a throat condition. All of the benefits that the Allergan got as an orphan drug uh, tax credits and everything else then went on to use as general drug. Nothing comes back to the federal government. It's been gained a hundred ways to Sunday by the drug industry. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating because on one hand, people will say, oh, this is a, a problem with capitalism or something of that nature. But it's actually very much crony capitalism because other competitors can't get in. They have special arrangements with governments and, you know, cost hundreds of millions of dollars to do these clinical trials and all that. So you basically completely limit the, the competition from anybody else. And these, these inside players have, have the track to be able to, you know, profit from this significantly, right? You're, you're right. 
and it's interesting, Ashton, because there's no doubt it's super expensive, over a billion dollars to get a drug approved. It's tough. And sometimes drug approvals don't come through, especially on real experimental drugs, cancer drugs and others. So there's great risk for the companies. And some of these biotech companies live and die on one drug promise. So I get that. I don't mean right. to minimize how easy it is. But one of the things that's happened is the FDA, 60 percent of the FDA's money revenue today comes from what they call expedited filings. So they came up with a process 15, 20 years ago, which they said to drug companies, if you pay us extra money, we'll put you on the fast track. So drug companies said, fantastic. You mean we don't have to wait two years? So they all pay the expedited fee, and as a result, that money comes into the FDA, but it sort of seems to me that you shouldn't be necessarily paying the regulator to speed up the process. You know, they're now dependent mm -hmm. on you for that. And there is absolutely no doubt that, you know, if we negotiated with them, I'm a capitalist. I believe in capitalism. We are a capitalist country, and I believe drug companies uh, should operate to make a profit. They have shareholders. They need to do that. But I also think that if we negotiated with them, and we, meaning the United States government in terms of Medicare, Medicaid, or other things, we reduce their profits a little bit, it's not going to be the end of the world for the shareholders. Absolutely. I agree. Now, let me, because I know you have a hard break in a second. So I got to I gotta ask you about the Kennedy assassination. You wrote a, a famous book on it, Case Closed. I saw the Oliver Stone revamped documentary that he did through the looking glass he i thought he made a pretty compelling case now obviously it's my first time looking into this th about how this this whole magic bullet theory that that he clings on to and other people uh who also doubt that there was a single shooter of the of the kennedy assassination they think it's a conspiracy theory basically that the first shot hit was was a miss the third shot hit the back of the head and then there's a second shot, and that's what they call the magic bullet, which somehow went through his back, then hit the governor of Texas in front of him, and his back, then his lung, then his wrist. And they say that's just impossible. So therefore, there must have been more than three shots. Therefore, there must have been a second shooter. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely right that if that shot, if there's four shots, there's a conspiracy. And you've got a conspiracy then, and you have to find what it is. The, and I would have liked to have spent a couple of years on the Kennedy assassination returned with the absolutely credible evidence of a conspiracy because I would have sold a lot more books than concluding that Oswald did it in the end. The, the, what I concluded about the, the so-called magic bullet is that it required no magic at all in the end for this reason. It turns out that, and it's not based upon me it's, it's supposing that's the case or wishing it was so or saying, oh, I think so. The, from 1993 and on, pretty much, ballistics have changed enough uh, that ballistics experts can now take two bodies the size and weight of the governor of Texas and Kennedy and put them in the same position they were at the moment that bullet strikes, which we know when that is by the frame of the Zapruder film, frame 223-224. The Zapruder film, which is a home movie, the assassination acts as a time clock for the assassination, 18.3 frames to a second. So you know now the 18th of a second in which the bullet hits. You have Kennedy and Connolly in that position. You have this 165 grain fully metal jacketed bullet uh, wartime bullet hitting the president in the high neck sort of shoulder area, passing through his neck without hitting any bone, um, going into Connolly and tumbling at that moment. And uh, So it's hit something, it's hit Kennedy. Why do I say tumbling? Because the entrance wound on Connolly's back is an inch and a quarter, which is the size actually of the bullet. It comes through, breaks his rib on his left chest as he's turning around holding his Stetson hat and comes out ripping under his nipple and then into his wrist. He goes through the wrist, shatters the wrist wow. into the thigh. Now, you say to me, and I think right away, and I'm not a big shooter, okay, not a big gun guy, I, that means the bullet has to be in smithereens because the Warren Commission had the FBI try to reconstruct the test. They shot a bullet like that into pig carcasses and the bullet came out all mangled up. So you say, well, of course then that bullet couldn't have been the one on the stretcher because that bullet on the stretcher is only flattened on one side. It's almost pristine. Okay, so now today they repeat that experiment all day long and they understand why that bullet's in that condition because it slows up as it hits the, uh, the two men. It hits Kennedy about 1,500 feet a second, fired from Oswald's gun or the assassin's gun. Let's not say Oswald to get anybody crazy. It's fired from the assassin's gun at 2,000 feet a second, hits Kennedy at 1,500 feet a second thereabouts. It exits and goes into Connolly at about 1,300 feet. When it exits and hits Connolly's wrists, it's traveling 900 feet and you send that through the equivalent of wrist bones at 900 feet all day long, it's going to come out mm. in the same condition you see that magic bullet in. So the real question is this. If that shot took place, forget whether it was Oswald, somebody firing from behind fired that bullet, which I believe was the second shot the first shot missed. The Warren Commission got it wrong. The Warren Commission got a lot of things wrong. The, if that happened, no matter who the assassin is from behind, the real magic bullet that day happened to be the so-called front shooter, the grassy knoll shooter, because that shooter mm -hmm. fouled the shot closer to Kennedy than any shooter from behind. And the grassy knoll shooter not only missed Kennedy, 
because the bullet shattered out the front of his head. But that shooter missed Mrs. Kennedy and missed the governor and Mrs. Kennedy and missed the Secret Service, missed the people standing on the other side. That bullet, there's been no remnants found of. And the interesting thing about that particular bullet, when I watched the Zapruder film, I'm convinced when I first watched it that Kennedy shot from the front. It looks like well, that way to all of us. You see him sitting in right. the car. He goes back. We've all seen a thousand different films. You get shot from the front. You go backwards. Big uh, open up cloud. When you watch it on digital stills, it's not very nice, but you get to see the president's head sort of explode out the front as this bullet enters the high rear portion, inch and a quarter higher, he misses Kennedy's head entirely, comes out the front of his head and blows out brain and blood matter, unfortunately, about almost a third of the brain. And the two police officers who are driving behind the Glemo, they were splattered with blood. I used to think that's because the bullet came from the front and splattered with them with blood. People watch the Zapruder frame, slow motion, frame by frame. They will see those two Dallas policemen drive right into the blood splatter as it goes up in the air in this cloud of mist. So I think, I'm just keeping an eye on the, uh, uh, watch for one thing, that people spend too much time at Dealey Plaza on the ballistics. And here's what I mean by that. I'm convinced that the credible evidence shows me and the ballistic evidence that Oswald, forget Oswald, that Kennedy was killed that day by a shooter firing from behind the president in the general vicinity where Oswald was left half an hour before the assassination. Now, if that's right, might be five assassins. There could be a conspiracy, but the only one of the assassins who worked that day was shooting from behind. Then the question is, is it Oswald or somebody else? Even if you conclude it's Oswald who's doing the shooting, which I do, and argue with that, then the question is, did he do it for himself or for somebody else? Was he part of a conspiracy for the mob, the CIA? Did the CIA know about it? So. If I was arguing a conspiracy, I'd focus on Oswald's connections, and people do, and what people knew, because I view him as the shooter. But people get quagmired into the single bullet and the questions of the, the headshot, and they don't get to the larger issues. They get stuck on the ballistics. And that would be important if you can't resolve them, but I think you can resolve them, even if the answer isn't one that most people find very satisfactory. Yeah, it's a fascinating discussion. Well, Gerald, thank you so much for being with me. I know you have to leave right now. Where can people find you? Uh, on uh, Posner.com, P-O-S-N-E-R.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, Gerald Posner and on YouTube at Gerald Posner. And I leave you, Ashton, just with this. I know you've had some recent shows on Ukraine and the war in Russia. Um, one of the few American industries still operating in Russia are pharmaceutical companies. American pharmaceutical companies have said we can't pull out because people will die. They need their heart medications, they need their cancer medications and everything else. So they have a special dispensation right now to be able to operate, to get payment from the Russians. And one of the few industries that hasn't closed up, Starbucks may have closed up and uh, Louis Vuitton may have closed up and you may have had uh, Papa John's even closing up. But pharma companies are still operating in, in otherwise sanctioned Russia. Still going strong. Gerald, thank you so much. Appreciate the time, man. Thank you so much. Thanks. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.